Welcome to the Anthropology and Business Podcast, where you'll learn about the many ways anthropology is applied in business and why business anthropology is one of the most effective lenses for making sense of organizations and consumers. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in advertising, marketing, consumer behavior, organizational culture, user experience, and many other roles, you'll learn firsthand what it means to do business anthropology and how the work differs from academic anthropology. We will discuss issues like the pace and depth of research in business, our visibility and influence as practitioners, and what we can do to build our brand. We will also focus on the value and impact of our research in business so that we can help business leaders understand why they should be hiring anthropologists. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. All right. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Matt Arts of the Anthropology and Business Podcast. I'm here today with Autumn McDonald. Autumn is an applied anthropologist, uh, a degree from UNT, same as me. So I'm happy to uh, have the opportunity to talk to another unt -er. And you're the owner of ADM Insights and Strategy, which we'll get into. Uh, previously, you've spent time at Hershey, Mattel, Revlon, Kraft, Colgate, Procter & Gamble. So a lot of great experience, a lot of things to talk about, I'm sure. So Autumn, would you mind maybe by uh, to start, would you maybe tell us a little bit about how you've come into anthropology? Yeah. So... You know, I think honestly, the seeds for anthropology for me were planted when I was really young as a child because we spent time overseas growing up and that gave me a chance to experience other peoples and other cultures and different ways of being. And I think that's what really piqued my curiosity initially. But then what I would say cemented that is during my time at Procter & Gamble, we were great at doing market research that answered what people said they were doing or what people said they felt, but we weren't so fabulous at getting at the underlying why. And I always felt that there had to be something more and that there had to be a robust and rigorous way to uncover that why, but we hadn't quite cracked the code on that. And so I knew that I wanted to go back to school and study and learn what could be done to get at that underlying why? And anthropology was the answer to that. Yeah, cool. Now you say, you know, from Procter & Gamble, but Procter & Gamble was, you know, more distant in your past. So yes. we actually have a similar story in that regard because yeah. I first had the idea to go back, you know, maybe as early as 2008, 2009. And then it took me probably four or five years before I actually made the, the transition. So you yeah. too had some gaps. So what, mm -hmm. you know, what was that process like in between, you know, and you know, why did it maybe take those years or you know, <laughs> what happened in there that finally sort of pushed you over? So the reason why I didn't go back right away at that time, very candidly is, you know, the compensation in corporate America is wonderful. And walking away from that was very hard. And I absolutely love research. So I loved what I was doing on a day-to-day -day basis. And so to think about stopping that altogether to go back to school was a difficult choice. But eventually I had to listen to the burning and the yearning that was in my heart and the passion to have that deeper understanding. And finally I did that. I said, you know, this is burning inside of me. I want to know the deeper whys. I'm not satisfied any longer simply getting at the claimed what and the claimed emotion and behavior. I've got to get uh, more depth or what we call as anthropologists, the thick data. And so I made a decision to leave corporate America and go back to school and focus on my own company. And here I am. Yeah, great. And so, did um, seeing as you went to UNT, you know, we've we're there, we were there at different times. So, did you do the mm -hmm. online program? Yes, I did. Okay. Yes. And so, you know, did that contribute also to you having the opportunity to do it? Because I know for me, it yeah. really was the same thing. I didn't want to quit working, so <laughs> that program made it possible. Absolutely. So the online program made it possible for me to maintain 
my work as a researcher and running my company. It also made it possible for me to remain living where I love to live. Um, I didn't have to relocate, but it also worked well for me and my personality. You know, I know that within the field of research, I think we are disproportionately represented by introverts and I happen to be one of them. So being able to do the UNT program online was great for me because it allowed me to study and connect with others when I wanted to connect with my other classmates, but it also allowed me that space to really dive into the work uh, in a solitary way when I needed it as well. Yeah, great. And so um, the tell us a little bit about the research you were doing you know, before you started your company. Before I started my company. Well, so as you mentioned, I have been working for many years at various Fortune 500s. And so the work that I was doing spanned a wide variety of, re- of arenas, everything from new product development and innovation type research to advertising development research and advertising testing, uh, pricing research, volume forecasting, you name it. Anything that you would think of as being in the business life cycle was the type of research I was doing. And I was doing research that was both quantitative and qualitative in nature. And in some cases, it was fielding new primary research. In other cases, it was leveraging syndicated research um, and secondary sources. So it was a wide variety of work. And I had been doing work across six continents. So I was very fortunate over the course of my career that I was able to do research around the world. Yeah, that's great. And did in that time, did you ever get to work with any anthropologists? I actually did not. It's interesting. And so that's what's so, you know, I during the, those years at Fortune 500s, I had worked with sociologists and I had worked with social psychologists, but had never crossed paths with an anthropologist. My exposure to anthropology was reading books, uh, mm-hmm. books that had caught my attention over the years and books that I had actually gone to to try to understand the deeper whys on my own. And those happened to be authored by anthropologists and a lot of them are sitting on my shelf even today. And so that was my exposure to anthropology. And then I started reading because I was trying to decide, well, should I go back to school for sociology or should I go back for anthropology? And the more and more I read, the more I knew that it was anthropology. Yeah, great. Were there any particular books that stood out at that time? Um, so there was a book that I really appreciated, and I, uh, the, it, it was a book by France Windens Twine, and it was looking at conceptions of race in Brazil related to the Afro-Brazilian community. And that's one by an anthropologist that, you know, I've gone back to over and over again over the years. In fact, I just tapped into it again for a research project I'm doing at the moment. (laughs) Well, so let's, um, maybe you don't, you can't speak about that project, but why don't we use that to pivot to your company? So, um, so now you have your own company. Mm -hmm. And so why don't you tell us a little bit about, you know, how that came to be, you know, the process of starting it and the kind of research you're doing there? Yeah. So I actually started the company in 2015 and I started that company in the fall of that year. I had left Mattel, um, I had left Mattel during a restructuring and I wasn't sure what I was going to do next. And so I thought, you know, why don't I start my own little company until I decide what's next? And I started doing research for agencies here in New York and dabbling in it. And I really enjoyed it. But then I received an excellent job offer to go to another Fortune 500. And with that, I had to put my company on hold and really only do work in the nonprofit space. So it wouldn't be um, a conflict of interest. Mm -hmm. But I kept it going doing nonprofit research. And then when I left that company and decided to go back to grad school, the shackles were freed and I could do any kind of research with my company I wanted to. And so now the work we do is primarily with multinational corporations. Um, We do work across continents. Literally at this moment, we're doing field work in North America 
and um, and in Europe. And we're in the process of discussions for some work looking at both Latin America, Africa, and North America doing some comparative research at the moment. Uh, but again, the work we do is both qualitative and quantitative. And our positioning as a company is that we do market research with an anthropological lens. And that anthropological lens is what gives us greater human centricity and depth of understanding. Yeah, great. And so, you know, that brings up something I know, you know, we've talked about in New York and the mm-hmm. concept of identity and do you, you know, do you include anthropology in the way you describe yourself or your business or mm-hmm. whatever it may be? And so you choose to do that, whereas some Absolutely. don't. So um, why did you choose to do that? Or I, let me first ask, did you choose mm-hmm. to do that from day well, you know, from day one of like sort of post UNT or during UNT mm-hmm. and, you know, what made you choose that? Yeah, it wasn't from day one because I had started the company prior to UNT. Honestly, it was, I started, I, I created that brand positioning when I really felt like I had become an anthropologist. And maybe you have a similar moment, Matt, um, but I think somewhere along the journey, uh, of anthropology and studying and growing, you have this inflection point where you say, yes, I am one now. <laughs> and and I had that moment, I had that inflection point uh, where I felt, you know, I, I am not solely a market researcher. I am now truly an anthropologist. And I not only have done the work, but I see the world differently, Matt. You know, being an anthropologist makes you see the world around you differently. It makes you think differently about your own experiences. It makes you think differently about the people you're interacting with day to day. And so when I hit that inflection point, that's when um, that's when the brand positioning for the company was crafted. Cool. Cool. So, uh, you know, that brings up something. The other night we were doing a, a live stream and somebody asked about imposter syndrome. So, you know, I'm curious to know, did that factor in at all for you? And like, you know, can you maybe speak of what it was like, if it did, overcoming that to to the point where you felt comfortable describing yourself as an anthropologist? Yeah. Uh, so I definitely can relate to that, Matt. And I, I, I need to listen to that conversation that you had. Um, I would say for me, for a long time, it was just a, a syndrome of fear, to be quite honest, rather than even imposter. And then I proceeded from fear to imposter. Um, And it was really because I was surrounded by these great minds, you know, these, these folks who know so much about anthropology and the social sciences that I didn't have the confidence for a while um, that I was like one of them, if that makes any Mm -hmm. sense. But then after a period of time engaging in conversation and debate and discourse and riffing with each other and building ideas about methodology it dawned on me that i can i can rough and tumble with them i can rough and tumble with the best of them and so it's at that point that the imposter syndrome shed away yeah that's great so when starting your company um you know, given some people when starting it, they have the trouble of getting clients and, you know, mm-hmm. going through that process. And, and of course, not just getting the first one, but maintaining the pipeline. Yes. So, you know, I'm wondering, did you have that struggle at all? I know you said you're doing some work for agencies initially in New York. Like, can you yeah. speak to maybe how you went about starting your business and getting work? Yeah. So I think for me, perhaps it was a little bit of a different journey. And that's because, you know, Me starting my business came about after two decades at Fortune 500s in corporate America. So I already had a professional network established Mm -hmm. and a community, a very large community of fellow researchers and folks who are in positions at various companies in which they are leading research organizations. They are making decisions about who to work with to field research, and they had known me and my work for many, many years when I was a researcher on the client side. And so I think that has played a huge role in helping ADM Insights and Strategy to grow 
because there's this there's a knowledge and a network of the type of research that was done previously mm-hmm. and then adding anthropology on that the knowledge that well it can only get better from there if, if yeah. that makes sense so it hasn't been uh there hasn't been the need to go out and advertise mm-hmm. per se i don't advertise all of our clients have come by word of mouth yeah that's great and i mean of course you're fortunate um not everybody of course has that that opportunity you know especially those who are starting it uh, new so you know that's that's great for you for sure um but it also you know maybe speaks to i guess there's still questions like so you had all this experience you had these you know this personal connection but you still didn't you know run your own business you know yes. before you started right so was there anything that you had to do just to just sort of upscale on you know the idea of even starting your own practice not from the research end, but just like the you know, business management, finance, anything in that space? So again, I think the fact that I had over two decades in business made it an easier upstart for me because mm-hmm. I had lived through working on not only big brands, but small brands, small brands that were being launched at Fortune 500s. And I had ha- been fortunate to see what that journey was like of launching and starting a small brand and doing that in multiple countries. So quite frankly, starting my own business was, was very easy. Um, the startup was, was felt, felt to me rather straightforward. It was just like launching a brand, (laughs) which I have been working on for years and years, except the brand was now mine instead of someone else's brand, uh, at a larger company. And so, I really just approached it that same way. You know, I developed a critical path schedule. I outlined what the different steps that needed to happen from a functional area, whether that was from a legal standpoint, finance standpoint, um, research expertise standpoint, and then I followed the critical path into marketplace. So for me, it felt rather second nature. That's great. Very fortunate to have all the experience you did, for sure. So why don't we, uh, so, you know, we, we're talking about the business, you said, you know, you have some projects right now that are spanning multiple yeah. continents. So you want to maybe, and I know you had some previous research experience that did the same. Mm-hmm. So you want to maybe talk about how you go about managing that, um, yeah. that need. And obviously right now during COVID, I assume that you're, you're working with some partners abroad. <laughs> So, you know, what does that, what does that process look like for anybody who's maybe not had the international experience? Yeah. So I I can talk about how I'm doing it with my company now, because on the client side, it's a little bit different how I would did it in that context, but we have uh, partners, partnerships with collaborators on the ground in various countries. So for example, not too long ago, my company was asked to do a project in China. And I was really excited to do it. I have been doing research in China since 2012, and it was a great opportunity. And the focus of the project was developing, I would say, content for shopper marketing and retail execution. Now, I don't speak Mandarin, (laughs) so obviously I needed someone who would be a strong moderator on the ground. And the way the partnership functioned was I'd, I wrote the screener, I wrote the discussion guide, and then I partnered with a local company and a moderator that is very well regarded, highly regarded in Shanghai. And he moderated while I listened live to the focus groups with real-time translation. And we moved from there. I wrote the summary and published it for the client. And we were able to move very quickly that way, but that that enabled us to have the language expertise, but also even in the screening, I asked him to use his local lens. If there were any screening questions I had written that weren't appropriate for the local market or should be tweaked, mm-hmm. getting his expertise in that domain was key. So we do that with partners on the ground in the markets, but we lead the design of all of the projects and 
we partner locally for in-language capability. And if there's something that we're not familiar with for the local context, culturally. Yeah, that's great. And so, you know, the, the point of having the moderator interject, you know, their expertise during the process yes. is interesting, but I'm wondering if you've ever even maybe moved that, you know, earlier in the workflow, have you ever kind of co-created the screener and discussion guides? Um, I have not needed to do that yet, Matt, not yet, um, for the screener. Um, it has always been me and my company taking the lead and then getting the input mm-hmm. from the local folks. But Matt, I think that's largely due to the fact that the countries where we've been doing research so far are countries where we have a decent level of prior experience, mm-hmm. right? If we were asked to go into a country where we didn't have prior experience, and I will be honest, there's, we're, we're engaged in some conversations now that would fall into that scope, then certainly the collaboration would have to look very different <laughs> um, because I would never, ever attempt to go into a country where I've not done research before and think that I know enough to take the lead on writing a screener. Got it. So, you know, I'd like to do a little bit more comparison of your previous experience and, and uh-huh. what you're doing now and even with education so, you know, you had two decades in, in business, so you certainly appreciate the pace of business. And, you know, the pace is something that, you know, we know comes up frequently, especially for, mm-hmm. say, academics who have gone straight through and now going into business. Yeah. So is what you're doing today very much like, sort of, you know, paced the way you used to do it in your earlier mm-hmm. career? And, you know, how did that, how does that quick pace, like, how did that work for you, say, like, you know, in comparison to your UNT thesis, you know, which is a little bit more extended, you know, how did you feel about sort of that slower pace? So I will say they are completely different, Matt, as you've alluded to, um, you know, business is extremely fast paced. And I would say that in business, uh, we operate with a continual uninterrupted sense of urgency. Um, And that to me is very different than what I've seen in academia, where I would say the concept of time is a little bit more fluid and what I perceive as being more relaxed. Mm -hmm. Um, So I will say I, I like both. I appreciate both. I like the sense of urgency because that's my natural inclination. I'm not a patient person. So, so, so I like the sense of urgency. It works well for me. But I will say, you know, the experience in academia, it has been refreshing because you really are able to spend time. For example, if you think about a text, if you think about a body of research, you're able to spend time with that research and really going deep into it and reflecting in a way that quite frankly, when you're on the client side, you're simply not able to do. Um, And so for me, the challenge is now um, how to take the best of those things and put them together with a company. So we're always thinking about our project management and our critical path schedules. And we have this massive project tracker (laughs) that we use. And I'm always looking ahead and thinking about, okay, well, this project is going to hit the analysis phase at this point. And we need to carve out enough time in the analysis phase so we can do that deeper exploration versus simply just running through the data and taking top line observations and thinking those are breakthrough. When we all know that intellectually we're capable of, and we've been trained as social scientists to do much more. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a matter of making sure that we're factoring that into the project timeline. So we are delving in not only to the new data that we've harnessed, but we're going back and we're looking at the work of, of theorists. And we're thinking about how those theoretical constructs tie into what we've observed in our data. Um, you know, we're spending time with things like Uh, cultural politics of black masculinity and relating that back to what we saw in our semi-structured interviews and bringing those things together. That takes time, but we have to do it quickly. 
Sure. So now that brings up something that I often ask about, which is, um, you know, so you mentioned theory there. So you're using that to, you know, help you to inform, you know, what you're doing to inform your insights and, and plus, Mm -hmm. you know, arguably the recommendations that come out of that. But do you, how much are you making that obvious to clients? Oh, we make it very obvious. We make it very obvious. Um, we think that that is an important part of the process, at least for us at our company, mm-hmm. that's an important part of the process. And so we explain to clients in the proposal phase some of the theoretical constructs that come to our minds immediately in thinking of relevance for that particular project. We're upfront in saying that. And we're also upfront in saying these will not be all of the theories, but these are ones that we believe are likely to be relevant. And then as we go through presenting the learnings to them, we share with them a little bit about the theories. Now, we do that carefully so the language makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And we convert it to business speak, but we are very transparent in sharing with them the theories that we've tapped into, and for those clients who are interested, who the theorists were. Mm-hmm. So, and so, how much uh, you know, seeing as you included early in the process, yes. How how much interest do you see in that in your clients? Is, <laughs> yeah. You know, is that a portion of you know of like the um, of that early process that they want to dig into, or they just kind of mm-hmm. glaze over or you know, move past it, or? So it it really varies by client. And I have to say, it's fascinating to me to see the variation mm-hmm. because we have some clients that really, um, for lack of a better term, geek out on it. <laughs> you know, like I had a client recently ask me, you know, what is the etymology of the words etic and emic? He wanted to know the etymology of these words. And so I thought, oh my gosh, I don't know the etymology. Let me go look that up for you. Um, You know, I had another client recently who wanted me to really explain to them how we go through the coding process and applying the theory. And so I literally made an eight minute video for the client that explained to the client how we walk through that. Um, But then I have other clients who their eyes just kind of glaze over and and you realize, okay, we don't go there with this client. And mm-hmm. so you make a note of that. And when you get ready to present results, you don't bother to talk to them about the theorists because you know that doesn't interest them. And then you have these other clients who are right in the middle. They don't want to know the details. They're not disengaged. But for them, it's really this idea of, oh, anthropology, sociocultural anthropology. We don't really understand what it is, but it sounds hot. <laughs> So, yeah, so that's, you know, a few people say that, a few people, of course, uh, you know, we get various opinions on that. But what, um, do you have any idea of what they think is so hot about it? You know, like, is it just, is it just, you know, the word itself or the sort of images that they conjure up in their mind about what anthropologists do? Yeah. Or is there, some, or do they have some sense of the, uh, the, the depth of, you know, findings that it can deliver? Mm-hmm. I think that, that they perceive it to be hot. Because one, it's, and bear with me in using this wording, but it's new. Again, because on if you think about the CPG space in particular, there are lots of years of history of working with sociologists and social psychologists, but you don't see a lot of anthropologists crossing the threshold of the office doorways. And so there's a hotness to it because it's new and unfamiliar, it's intriguing. But there's also this, hotness associated with anthropology because while it's not truly understood, there is a nebulous comprehension of the fact that it is somehow related to the studies of human and culture. Mm -hmm. And again, while people don't really understand what culture truly means, they know that it's something that they need to wrap, have some kind of wrapping of their minds around. And if an anthropologist can help them do that, then it makes an anthropologist appealing. And lastly, I would say, I think anthropologists are perceived as hot to them because it sounds intellectual. (laughs) And so that makes them believe that they're going to gain something from it that they would not otherwise. Yeah. So in your role, um, 
when you are, say, in these, you're describing the organization as anthropologically driven, but do you describe yourself in these meetings as an anthropologist? You know, how do you refer to yourself? Business anthropologist, applied anthropologist, researcher? Yeah, I, I refer to myself as a market researcher and a sociocultural anthropologist. And, and that's important uh, for two reasons, because that's one, that's who I am. I am both. Mm-hmm. Um, but two, that allows them to know that I relate to them because our clients are, for the most part, they are market researchers and folks in the functions that are called insights and analytics on the client side. So by referring to myself as a market researcher, it lets them know, I understand you. I've, I spent two decades sitting in the exact same chair that you're in. Um, I have your back. I relate to you. But then letting them know that I'm a sociocultural anthropologist lets them know that I also bring this other expertise that doesn't reside within their organization. I bring something extra and special uh, that is important and that from which they would benefit. So I reflect the duality of my identity in my introductions and in how I refer to myself. Yeah, that's interesting because you, as opposed to some others, even myself, you you lead with the role and then back it up with anthropology, whereas other people sort of, you know, I lead with anthropology and then sort of specify the, the roles or uh, that, I, you know, the roles that I engage in. So it's, it's an mm-hmm. interesting perspective. I didn't think about flipping it, but I'm glad you shared that. <laughs> Speaking of identity, you know, so mm-hmm. you're running, you're, you're, it's a woman-owned business. And I think it's most, mm-hmm. is the staff all women as well? So, <laughs> so um, it, it, it's a consultancy model. So I, I don't use the term staff or an employees, but uh, the the consultants are all women, with the exception of one visiting consultant who is a man. Yeah, that's cool. That's uh, how have you have you had any struggles? You know, as as a woman led business, is there anything that I know if you've posted on LinkedIn, you know about you know you post some content that is you know socially aware. I will just you know frame it as a, you know gender race. Mm-hmm. So have you had any struggles that you know you think with sharing with other women you know who wish to start a business would be interesting? Hmm. You know. Matt, it's interesting because I, I get questions about that. And I would say, for me, you know, if I think about the intersectional dynamics of who I am, right? I'm a woman, I'm a person of color, and I also happen to be ADA, which is not something I talk about a lot. Um, but I have those three intersecting points. And I would say the, the point that affects me the most as an anthropologist, as a market researcher, and as a business owner is not the gender portion of my intersectionality. It's the race portion of my intersectionality. So quite frankly, I don't feel that I have experienced any challenges in being a business owner or an entrepreneur due to my gender. I feel like there are certain things I need to do differently in being an entrepreneur and business owner due to my race and ethnicity. Mm -hmm. So that to me is what I see playing a bigger role in how I have to navigate the course um, in a very intentional and different way rather than my gender. Got it. And is there you know, anything that you learned there that maybe others should be aware of if they're, again, thinking of, you know, starting a business? Yeah, I would say I think it's really important if you are, if you are a person of color who is striving to start a business in this space, I think it's very important for you to carve out what is the lane in which you want to play how you want to define your brand and the scope and make sure you have the expertise to do that. And and that applies for everyone, but let me be clear what I mean by that in the context of being a person of color or BIPOC or whatever terminology a person chooses to use. Um, I think oftentimes if you are BIPOC or a person of color, you can easily get channeled 
into a situation which clients think you only do work related to that specific community. And that might be your choice. You may say, oh, you know what? I am, I am Asian. I want to focus my research on the Asian community or I'm indigenous. I want to focus on work on the indigenous community and so on. And that is wonderful. And that is beautiful if that's what you want to do. If you want to do work that is more broad than that, I find that it is a constant reminder to let clients know that you do work beyond the community that matches the language you speak or your phenotype or Mm -hmm. whatever label may be associated with you demographically. And so for me, that's something that I am constantly, um, constantly thinking about. Because, yes, I've done over 300 studies with Blacks in the United States. Yes, I've done over 200 studies with Latinos in the United States. But I've also done research in Australia. I've also done research in South Africa and Venezuela and Colombia. And so I don't want, it's important for clients to understand that um, the scope of the work that our company does is not limited to one particular demographic. And so I think that's an important thing for people of color to keep in mind in starting their own business. Yeah, thanks. That's a good takeaway. And how do you go about, you know, communicating your experience? Uh, do you do you try to bring that in very early in the process just so they they do understand the, you know, the depth and breadth of the work you've done? Oh, absolutely. You know, um we have a company interdeck and in the company interdeck we call out very clearly that we do work across six continents. Um, that is explicitly called out. So we make it very clear that our work is not limited to any one particular community, demographic, or region of the world. Great. And so, you know, back to your role in in the maybe in the daily life of your role. Tell me. Yes especially as a business owner, you know, what does that look like for you? How much research are you doing versus how much, you know, just business management and, you know, what, just give, give us everybody a sense of, you know, what that daily, weekly kind of monthly world looks like. So, you know, Matt, I would say a, a daily, weekly, monthly look is doing everything that, and I, I, and I truly mean that in the most sincere way. I mean, I am doing everything from, sitting down and doing the books with the accountant uh, to reviewing contracts with our company legal counsel to I spent four days this week doing field work, semi-structured interviews. Today, prior to meeting with you, I was doing analysis um, on field notes from the interviews. And earlier this week, I was literally going through and racking my brains, looking at different theoretical constructs and trying to align those to the field notes from another body of work. Um, And earlier this morning, I was writing a screener. (laughs) So it really is nuts to bolts, everything. Uh, And and I think that goes back to what we discussed earlier about, you know, an entire product life cycle. Well, now it is the entire uh, product life cycle of my business, right? From from top to bottom, bottom to top, every aspect of the business. And so do you enjoy owning the business as opposed to being in, in-house? Absolutely, I do. Um, but I think that there's a variety of things there. One, I like the freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like the freedom and the flexibility. But I think too, the part of the reason why I love my business so much is because I do have the anthropological lens now. I don't think that I would enjoy this business as much as I do if I hadn't acquired that expertise. Because I don't know about you, Matt, but it's it's really fun to sit down with a stack of body of journal articles on one side and your data on the other side, and you're thinking about how does the content in these journal articles align with the data that you've observed in your research and marrying it all together to create something beautiful and this deep aha that your client never knew before and they wouldn't have been exposed to otherwise? I love that. Um, sure. So, so yes, I love my, I love owning a business, 
And I know that a large part of the love I have for this business and my enjoyment of it is directly related to anthropology. So, yeah, it's funny you say all that because right before this, I was reading through some articles while trying to put together a new paper for, you know, an upcoming conference. Mm -hmm. And and I agree, you know, it's 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 an enjoyable task, mm -hmm. but we oftentimes in business don't contribute back, you know, maybe as frequently mm -hmm. as we could. And I mentioned this again in the live stream the other night in my closing that you know, we were on this live stream talking about how you know, we, we want to use new media to make anthropology more visible. Mm -hmm. And a lot of comments came up in there, you know, from, from the, the team yeah. about how we'd like to see academics sort of, you know, engaging in, you know, in anything from the use of LinkedIn to whatever it may be, right. Mm -hmm. to, to sort of help promote anthropology. And mm -hmm. at the end I said, I agree with that. I think that's all good and well, but it would also, I think, behoove us all if we, you know, you, I, and mm -hmm. you know, all of our other kind of colleagues also contribute back, yeah. you know, because the things we're learning in the field can certainly help develop uh, not just, you know, theoretical, but, you know, maybe new methodological approaches. Yeah. And so I'm wondering, are you, you know, are you thinking of, given your, you know, your love for that process, are you thinking of taking any of your data and doing something with it? So, so short answer is yes, it is something I've thought about. Um, I will also be very honest with you in sharing the challenges that I think about when I consider that. One is the challenge of securing client agreement mm -hmm. to have their research shared in that way. Because, you know, research in, when you think about multinational corporations, it is a competitive advantage. And they have to be willing to allow us to use the research in that type of exercise for sharing in the discipline. So that's one challenge. The other challenge I have is, you know, there is within our discipline, as you know, a certain expectation for how things are communicated when you read certain anthropological journals or other social science journals. Sure. Uh, and there are others that are written in a more accessible way. So, for example, the SFAA, their articles, I find, are quite often written in a manner that is quite accessible. Um, and so the challenge I struggle with is I don't want to be constrained by having to take what I know is very robust research and having to communicate it in a way that is not authentic to me and who I am. Um, so, you know, if, if we are empowered as anthropologists to write and bear with me, cause I'm going to use this very loosely. Okay. If we are empowered as anthropologists to share our findings and our research back as natives, and I'm using that term, loosely right now, but natives in the sense of being native to the business world in which we operate and reflecting the voice, the insider's voice of the business world, then wonderful. But if we are, have to let go of our nativeness to the business world and we have to reject the voice, the insider voice, um, for which we are experts, then I struggle with that a little bit because isn't our responsibility as anthropologists to reflect the insider's voice? Sure. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a fair point, and you know, I while I haven't done this yet, I know both Bob Morace and you know Tim Malafide have seemed to navigate that by one, po you know, publishing in the Journal of Business Anthropology, but mm -hmm. also you know just sort of. Uh, you know, loosely referring to the client work, if you will, mm -hmm. like, you know, client in X industry versus naming who it mm -hmm. is. And so, you know, that I'm looking at, you know, how can I possibly do that with yeah. some of, of the, the data I have? But I imagine, you know, in your case too, you have long history of it. So it'd be very interesting to read what, what you might be able to come up with. We have a client that just agreed with us to um, do conference presentations on a body of work we just finished. Uh, it's a body of work that we're very excited about. And it was a body of work focused on understanding culture of specific communities. And so we're thrilled that they want to co-present with us. And so it's a matter of us then determining 
which conferences that will be. And I have to be honest with you, Matt, I don't know if we're going to lean towards presenting at business conferences or if we're going to try to present at applied anthropology conferences. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that brings up, you know, something that I tried to do, which is speak outside of anthropology, of course, in relatively non-anthropological terms in that case. <laughs> Um, but it's, you know, I think there's a value in both. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's probably obvious, right? But doing it outside and help, you know, again, sort of increasing our visibility, mm-hmm. raising the awareness of what we do is yes. you know, something that I know I'm particularly fond of and, and seems to resonate. And you do a great job of it. Oh, well, thanks. You do. You, do. you know, and it does seem to resonate well. I mean, as you said earlier, people are generally interested in anthropology. So, you know, bringing it to that crowd, I think is helpful because mm-hmm. one of the you know, really one of the goals of, say, this podcast, but maybe some of those efforts is to help other anthropologists get, you know, if, if you're a consultant, get hired more as a consultant. Mm-hmm. If you want to work in-house, right, have more hiring managers who might be aware of the value of anthropology and want to hire you. And so um, I'd love to see you do it. And, and certainly if you do it, please let me know. I'd be, be curious to check it out. I will definitely let you know because I'd want to get your feedback. So absolutely. Yeah, sounds good. But that, that also, you know, dovetails nicely into a few conversations we again often have in New York, which is sort of around how do we demonstrate our value or how do we communicate you know, our value? How do we sort of gauge, you know, our performance, if you will? So, you know, I'd be curious to know in that space, you know, maybe talk a little bit about how you present your findings to clients. Mm. I'm always curious to know, like, you know, how, how different practitioners go about that and what yeah. works well and what doesn't. And then I'll probably have a few follow ups on that. Okay. Well, in terms of how we present findings to clients, it really is dictated by the client and the client's corporate culture. So some clients really love PowerPoint presentations. Other clients love videos. Other clients really want um, long papers that feel more academic Mm -hmm. in nature. So, yeah, I mean, I have one client who was very, very clear in saying, I know you do that anthropology stuff. So can you write a paper for me that feels more anthropology-like? <laughs> and so, nice. and, nice and that's what it was. It ended up being uh, a very, very long paper um, with 65 sources cited. Hmm. Uh, it was a very large body of work. Other clients are very clear in saying, I want a PowerPoint and I don't want the PowerPoint to be any more than 30 slides. Uh, Other clients are very clear in saying we want high quality video illustrations. And so we will go out and we will look for a film director to partner with in creating those video illustrations. So it really, really depends on the client and their corporate culture and what they're trying to achieve. And are they... You know, you said a few of them will sort of tell you that, but do they always tell? I mean, I presume they don't always tell you. So, like, if no, how do you go about sort of, you know, making sense of that environment? We ask. We're we're anthropologists. We ask questions. So, so we, you know, we we interview them just like we would interview a respondent, and we have a conversation about, you know, what they're hoping to achieve, who their stakeholders Mm -hmm. are, what does success look like in the end, what types of communications resonate in their organization. Why have okay. other communications in their organization failed or fallen short? And then based upon that, we'll share with them, well, here's how we think we should approach this and we get their feedback. Yeah, wonderful. Makes so much sense, right? So. Stakeholder interviews, you know, <laughs> all around or cannot be uh, stressed enough. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we do, you know, we can forget to uh, touch base with everybody we should in the business environment. and. Mm-hmm. Learning their language and their rituals and all is, is just exactly. so important. Yeah. So, I mean, they're just, they're, they're people to study just like our research participants. Yeah. So. So, yeah, wonderful. So, um, and how about, you know, gauging the ultimate success? I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, there's, you know, probably a lot of your work, there's some dollars and cents attached to it, which <laughs> always, you know, helps. Yes. Yeah. Make that clear. But you now, how do you, how do you go about figuring out if you did a good job? Yeah. So in terms of figuring out, how we, whether or not we did a good job. Of course, you can always kind of look for verbal feedback. That's a softer indicator. But I look for things such as, do they ask for an additional project? 
Um, that's always an indicator that they're pleased with the initial work. Are you getting repeat business? Um, do they recommend you to other companies uh, and do, so that th they can become clients? Those are the things I look at is repeat business and are we getting word of mouth from that client? Yeah, it makes sense. And so um, I'm maybe like to pivot now to, you know, maybe some recommendations you would have for anybody else who wants to get in this kind of work. So as we said at the outset, you know, you're fortunate in that you had two decades of experience mm -hmm. might be a little harder for some, but if you were, you know, if you were to reflect on anything about your path, uh, whether, you know, when you did your anthropology education or how you did it or, you know, how you started your business, anything in either of those spaces, you yeah. know, anything, think you, you have anything that you would recommend to anybody else who maybe wants to start their own practice? Wow, Matt. So I have so many things I would recommend. Um, so you kind of asked me two questions. You asked me for recommendations related to, you know, school and the anthropology journey, but you also asked for recommendations related to business. Do you want me to answer both or one or the other? Um, you can take it as you wish. I'll leave it up to you. Whatever you think is relevant for anybody. So as it relates to the academic journey, I would first of all say, if you are coming into anthropology from a discipline that is outside of the social sciences, I would say do a lot of preparation in advance. Um, for me, it was a very difficult transition. You know, my undergraduate degree is in theoretical mathematics. And so going into anthropology was not a smooth and easy switch. So I would just say, to anyone, I would reach out to the department in advance and ask for suggested readings that you can do the summer before you start the fall semester and kind of ramp up. Um, in terms of business, one piece of advice I would really give, um, and this is whether someone is new in doing business anthropology or whether someone has been doing business anthropology for a really long time, I would really encourage folks to get client side experience and perspective. Um, I can't stress that enough because, you know, it is very different than consultant side. Uh, there's a different way of thinking. There's a different way of speaking. There's a different way of being. And I think it can go a really long way towards aiding in success if someone truly understands the client side experience. So whether that is, if you're brand new to business anthropology, seek opportunities to shadow someone. People love to be shadowed. Um, you know, I seriously, they do, you know, just ask someone on the client side, a client side person in inside analytics, can I shadow you for a few days so that you can do participant observation as an anthropologist of the people you are intending to gain as clients later on. But having that in-depth experience is key because I guarantee you the client-side world is nothing like what you experience in academia. <laughs> and I guarantee yeah. it's nothing like, they are worlds apart. And I guarantee you that the client, and you know this, Matt, you've been working client-side and client-side for the world is also very different from the consulting world. So um, that would be my biggest piece of advice is get some client-side experience. Yeah, great. And what do you think about your gap? Um, you know, we both had a gap yeah. with work experience in between. And so, you know, I'm curious to hear, do you think, you know, in a, in a completely other world, do you mm -hmm. think you would have want to go straight through and get an anthropology degree, you know, master's mm -hmm. degree, or do you, do, do you now, you know, do you appreciate that you had the gap in the work experience? Oh, I absolutely needed that work experience. Absolutely. Um, because having all of those years of research experience to draw on allowed me to have an entirely different view and way of internalizing what I was learning throughout the academic journey. So I think I would have missed out tremendously if I had gone straight from undergrad to grad school. Being able to draw on real life research experience was key. Um, it, was, it was critical. It was absolutely yeah. critical. 
Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I appreciate that there are circumstances that may make it so that it makes sense to go straight through. Yes. But in my case, I'm glad I was able to bring the work experience to the UNT program. Absolutely. You know, it, definitely felt much richer in both directions, right? What you can contribute yes. and what you can take out. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, you know, in closing, I guess, is there anything that you want to mention of, I mean, of course, you know, your business, but anything even other than that, feel free to maybe anything that you're passionate about that you'd like to share? Mm, I think the only other thing I would share in closing, and I'd love to know your thoughts on this too, Matt. Um, mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier that, you know, I will put content on LinkedIn that is oriented towards um, societal issues at times. And I, I, I see in anthropology that there's kind of a little bit of a split. I don't know if you've noticed this, where there are anthropologists that are very much focused on social issues. And then there's anthropologists that are focused on business and sometimes there's this linkage between the two, but other times there can be a tension between the two. Have you noticed that? Yeah, you know, I, there's, especially on LinkedIn, you know, okay. there is, I'd say there, you know, I, my my very sort of broad, you know, view of LinkedIn, I think is generally less political, right? Okay. And, you know, whereas, I think anthropologists who are engaged in business might be a little bit more political on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Now that's, okay. you know, that's an observation which may or may not be true, but. But I was referring to it not limited to the scope of LinkedIn. I was talking, thinking about it just in terms of our total existence that mm-hmm. I think sometimes there is a linkage and sometimes there's a tension because I've seen in some academic discourse, for example, that anthropologists who might be more engaged in societal issues kind of have a view about business and capitalism, et cetera. So so the only point I was going to make is that I think it's important for us as anthropologists to realize that um, the two don't have to be at odds with each other. Yeah. You know, to me, where the linkage is maybe more clear is in the design anthropology space, which Uh is really like, you know, I say that I work in business anthropology and specialize in design anthropology because I am, you know, very much uh, in the space of, you know, Mm co-creating, you know, in research and design with participants, you know, to create products or services that ideally are going to impact some change. And so... Um, I think in that space, it's much more common for people to sort of dig into those issues. Whereas mm. maybe in the more sort of traditional business anthropology space, okay. you know, I think it's maybe less so. Um, but I do think there are you know people in the design anthropology space who are tackling that. And even to your point, like so, you know, I just wrote an article for the AAA on on anthropology news, which was about DNA testing and immigration and how you know it was unethical mm-hmm. and. That comes out of my, well, actually my UNT thesis research Mm -hmm. and then the research I've been doing on that topic since. But it's, you know, it very much came out of product-oriented, design anthropology-oriented research Mm -hmm. and has now sort of translated into this sort of, you know, advocacy work to say that uh, genetic testing in a lot of spaces is, is, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of ethical issues Mm -hmm. going on, right? Data privacy, the way, you know, it's being sort of uh, used by the government. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a number of them that we could dig into, but the point there is, is that I, so I think in that space, there's, it's, you have people who are of that mindset and yeah. who are digging into those kind of topics. Okay. And so maybe I am not, because um, design anthropology, the design space is not my arena. So yeah. I'm not exposed to that in the same way you are. Um, in the arena in which I am playing, I see that tension. And so I would just say to people, you can bring the two together and you can do so effectively if you choose to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all of us, you know, even in that, you know, in, in your realm say, you know, there is plenty of opportunity to have that conversation still. Right? <laughs> it, you know, all of us engaged in business are, are engaged in activities that can, you know, that have something to say, you know, for these social issues, you know, even, uh, you know, really any, you know, any of the race issues that came up mm-hmm. over, you know, the, you know, well, have resurfaced over the summer, mm-hmm. right? Or, mm-hmm. you know, the sort of way Facebook right now is sort of, I don't know if you saw, like, they have a commercial out right now where they're mm-hmm. sort of trying to counteract like the privacy issues that they're dealing uh, with. And, yeah. Yeah. 
yeah. you know, it, yeah, there's just such an opportunity to have a conversation about, you know, what they're saying, even if you're sort of in, you know, maybe more of the brand advertising space, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and, and how that relates to sort of privacy and mis- and disinformation and all of that. So yeah, there's, there's plenty of linkages. So post COVID, you and I need to sit down for lunch. Cause I think you and I could have a much longer conversation on this topic than the podcast is going to allow us to have. Yeah, sounds great. Love to do it. And so um, I guess with that in mind, do you want to maybe let everybody know where they can find you? Um, Sure. I think probably the easiest way to find me is on LinkedIn, uh, Autumn D. McDonald on LinkedIn. And again, that's Autumn D. as in Dawn McDonald on LinkedIn. And I'd love to hear from you. As in ADM Insights. Exactly. (laughs) And where can they find the business? So this is what I was mentioning. We get all of our clients through word of mouth. So we have an Instagram page, uh, ADM Insight Strategy, and a Facebook page, ADM Insight Strategy, but we do not advertise. So So no website? No, it's literally all through word of mouth. The company has grown all through word of mouth. And so, um, you know, you can look at that in different ways, but I look at it as I think that's a testimony to the quality of the work that we do. Yeah. Well, sounds great. And we'll leave it at that <laughs> wonderful way to end. So thanks for all the work you're doing, Autumn. Appreciate Thank it. You. Thanks for coming on as well. It was a great conversation with you. Thank you, Matt. I look forward to it. Thank you for listening to the Anthropology and Business Podcast. To learn everything you need to break into business anthropology, and why business anthropology is one of the best lenses for contributing to business success, visit my website at madarts.me, where I cover many topics related to business anthropology and beyond. There you will find all the podcast episodes, blogs, and news. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.